please grab your Bibles and open them with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 13 and we considered together the very real danger of idolatry in our lives. We considered how we as Christians need to be warned lest we fall away like the Israelites fell away. But we also considered how faithful God has been to provide a way of escape through giving us new hearts, new hearts that are able to see and understand and believe in his great love for us in and through the gospel. Today, in the next section of this chapter, Paul is going to continue to warn us. And he's going to do this by showing us how incompatible it is to have a relationship with God, and to have a relationship with idols and the demons that they represent. And so let's begin this morning by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning to our hearts, to our souls, and for the transformation of our lives. Friends, you can call me petty, but if you flirt with my wife, Ashley, we're going to have a problem. Seriously, Ashley is the center of my world. Time with her and attention from her is everything to me. And yes, I am probably insecure and overly protective. But if I feel like you are getting more attention from Ashley than I am, I'm probably going to try to beat you up. And I've never been in a fight in my life, but I'm going to come out swinging. Pastors probably shouldn't punch people out. But, but I just love her that much and, and really no apologies for it. As her husband, I want to be her everything. I want to be her joy. I want to be her delight. And if I'm not, I'm jealous of whatever or whoever is. I don't want to share that place in her life even a little bit. I remember when I met Ashley in college. We were in the same class for one semester, but we didn't really know each other at all until one afternoon when I needed to study for the final exam but I only had one page of notes from the entire semester. 
and I needed help. I needed somebody who was actually a student. So I found Ashley in the lobby and I asked if she would study with me and she graciously said that she would. And so we studied for a good eight or nine hours together. And I went up to my dorm room that night and I told my roommate, I am marrying Ashley Danielle Emblich. 100% confident. I began to save for the ring that very night. But it was a little funny because we weren't officially going out yet. Ashley needed at least another day or two before she was convinced that she was supposed to marry me. But it was weird because as, as head RA on campus and as chaplain on campus, I would have these other guys come into my room and start talking to me about this girl named Ashley on campus. Many guys were thinking about changing their majors to Ashley's major. I don't know why. Several guys were asking counsel on whether they should ask her out or not. And because I hadn't officially started dating her yet, I didn't have anything to do. I couldn't say, dude, back off, she's mine. And so I just started thinking more discreetly. I started daydreaming about where I could bury their bodies on campus <laughs> without them ever being found. Friends, when it comes to Ashley, I am a jealous person. I readily admit it. And I, I don't think that it is that I am particularly insecure. Maybe it is. Maybe there is insecurity there. But more than anything, my jealousy comes from my great love for Ashley and my desire for our relationship to be as strong and joyful as possible. I don't want anything to separate us. I want us to be as committed and unified and happy in our relationship as possible by God's grace. Now, church, the, the comparison falls woefully short because I am a sinful man and my motives are not perfectly pure as God's are. But, church, did you know that your God is a jealous God? Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. And people might hear that and wonder, is God just petty? Is God insecure? Is he jealous because he's afraid that our affections can be won over easily to some other God? Or... Is he jealous because he loves us and wants as rich and satisfying and joyful a relationship with us as he can? Not only for himself, but for us. Friends, Paul has said many things about idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10. He has made it very clear that an idol in and of itself is not a big deal. It's just a piece of wood or stone. It does not compare to the one true God. And so in one sense, eating a piece of meat that had been offered to an idol is not a big deal. But even as we saw last week, Paul still has significant concerns about whether we participate in forms of idolatry or not, and what it says about our relationship with God himself. Last week, we noticed that, that idolatry does not start when you have a piece of stone in front of you. Idolatry does not begin when you eat that piece of meat or even when you step into that temple. No, idolatry begins with false worship and false hope in a false God coming from our own hearts. And Paul says here, it's not just a, a false God or a, a piece of stone, but as Paul will say, it's actually demonic powers who are opposed to God. Paul wants us to see 
how jealous God is to have an exclusive relationship with his people and with our hearts. He does not want to share our affections with idols or with the demons that they represent. The main idea for our message this morning is this. The Lord is jealous to be in relationship with you and so flee from idolatry. The Lord is jealous to be in relationship with you today and so flee from idolatry. And we have three points. Point number one, fleeing idolatry. Point number two, participating in Christ, partaking in Christ, I'm sorry. And point number three, provoking the Lord. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, fleeing from idolatry. Last week we saw in verses 1 to 13 how, how dangerous it is to have an outward appearance of a relationship with God without having our, our hearts be truly changed or transformed by God. The Israelites from the Old Testament outwardly identified with God through their deliverance from Egypt. They even outwardly identified with God through their partaking of bread and drink in the wilderness that God had provided for them. There was, there was every reason externally to believe that they were God's people. Nevertheless, as Paul says in verse 5, nevertheless, with many of them, they were not saved their relationship with God was merely external without internal transformation. Paul warned us that the same merely outward relationship is possible for many within the visible church as well. But then he also said that we have every reason for confidence and joy if our faith is in Jesus because God has been faithful through Jesus, through the gospel, God has drawn near to us, even to our idolatrous hearts. He has drawn near to us in our sin, and in a greater way than even for many of the Israelites, he has now regenerated our hearts. He has replaced the hearts of stones with hearts of flesh, hearts that can truly be in relationship with him. Church, God has done great things, amen? He has redeemed and rescued his people, not just from external bondage, but from the bondage of their own hearts. He has enabled us to be in relationship with him. Why? Because he loves us and desires to be in relationship with us. And so listen, it is in the midst of considering this great love and this faithfulness of God from verses 12 to 13 that we now come to verse 14. And it really should be expected by us. Considering the faithfulness of God, despite our idolatrous hearts, that should make us want nothing more than to run after him with our lives. We should run after a relationship with this God who has saved us even from the idolatry and the false worship of our hearts. He's done great things. Christian, do you remember the things that you worshipped before you worshipped the one true God? Do you remember how broken your life was? How you worshipped your reputation? How you worshipped your circle of friends? Or your appearance of wanting to be perfect? Or how you worshipped your lustful desires and cravings? Or how you worshipped having that perfect home or family? Or how you worshipped that relationship? Or how you worshipped being popular or smart or successful? Or how you worshipped escaping from your bondage and your depression and your many mistakes? And so how you worshipped that next, next hit of drugs or worshipped the peace and, and oblivion that comes through alcohol? Friends, apart from God's grace, we worshipped everything but the one true God. 
But yet even while we were his enemies, God gave himself for us. This is extraordinary love. And it is this love and this grace, this faithfulness of God that should lead us today towards running away from every other thing that might win our affections away from God. Look at verse 14. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I love how he has the word beloved in that verse. He is not saying Flee from idolatry, flee from the attractions of this world so that maybe, perhaps, you might be saved someday. No, this is not legalism. This is not earning God's favor through what we do away with. This is gospel joy. This is gospel-fueled obedience and devotion because we've already been saved from our sins. We're already part of the beloved. We're already saved by God and a part of a beautiful relationship with him and with his people. And it is because of this Redeemer Fellowship, the work that God has already done, that we now have the joyful opportunity, the joyful responsibility to flee, to run away from everything that might capture our hearts away from the Lord. Just as I should want to run away from anything in this world that might distract me away from my marriage relationship with Ashley. To flirt with the world or with another woman is a contradiction of the relationship that I have with my wife. In the same way, Paul is saying that to participate in a relationship with this world that contradicts our relationship with the one true God should just not make any sense to us as the church. It should befuddle us. It should seem insensible to us. And Paul wants us to see how insensible, how illogical it is. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, partaking in Christ. I don't know about you, but when I, when I start talking about idolatry in my heart, or when I start talking about the idea that I can worship things other than God, or when I hear Paul warning that it's very easy for my relationship with God to be merely external, like the Israelites' relationship was, my immediate temptation is to explain that all away. I don't know about you, but I try to excuse myself from being guilty of this. I say things like, of course my heart isn't worshiping false gods. Of course I don't want a nice house and perfect family more than God. Of course I don't crave the praise and thanks of men. I would never, I would never worship a false god. I don't know about you, but I, I tend to excuse myself very quickly. But Paul does not want us to excuse ourselves from this. He, he is giving these warnings because he knows that part of sincere faith in God, part of being a sincere Christian man or woman is to see the very real danger of false worship in our hearts. And by God's grace, part of being a true believer is to flee from it and to not ever grow comfortable with it. But because Paul knows our tendency to excuse ourselves from the burden of this and to minimize the danger Paul begins to speak very directly to us again in this text. He wants to help us to see the, the situation more accurately. Look at verse 15. He says, he says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And I actually really like what Paul does here because he's playing into the Corinthians' prideful tendency. He knows that they're going to try to excuse themselves from these things. And so he invites them to 
to think logically about it with him. He, he kind of plays to their pride because we know that the Corinthians love to think of themselves as wise and as having logic and being powerful with their minds. He says, Corinthians, you claim to be intelligent. You claim to have lots of wisdom. And so judge for yourself what I'm saying. He's inviting them to think sensibly about these things, to, to think logically. And then he shows them how logical his argument really is. Look at verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? In those two verses, Paul is talking about the communion meal that we celebrate each week. The the cup of blessing that we bless, it's the, the drink that we drink together after the sermon each week. The bread that we break is the bread that we eat together. Friends, listen, the the communion meal, the Lord's Supper, is a blessing for a whole lot of different reasons. And we're going to talk about the blessing of this meal as we get into chapter 11 together. But one of the primary purposes of the Lord's Supper, of the communion meal, as seen in this text, is that we eat and drink together. And as we do, we are reaffirming and recommitting to our relationship with Jesus. We are visibly identifying with him as we partake of the meal. Do you know what communion is like? It's kind of like a wedding band. A wedding band is emphatically not a marriage. You can have a marriage without having a wedding band, but a wedding band, at least in our culture, symbolizes what a marriage is. It's a, it's a sign of commitment. And so sometimes when I work out in my gym in the garage, I take it off so I don't damage it and I put it to the side, and then sometimes I forget to put it back on. And oftentimes Ashley will find it and she'll jokingly be like, uh, excuse me, I believe this belongs to you. She jokingly says that she's offended. Why? Well, because that ring is a symbol to her and to the world around us that I am committed to her. It's a good thing. When, when Paul talks about the cup of blessing that we bless and the bread that we break, he's talking about this meal that we share together. And he's talking about how every Sunday that we participate in this meal, we are identifying with Jesus through these things. But by coming to church... By, by singing these songs, by praying together, by listening to his word, and by partaking of this communion meal, we are saying that God has won us to himself through Jesus and that we are in relationship with him. It is indeed a cup of blessing that we bless. Through his shed blood and broken body in the gospel, we have been blessed and we are now covenanted to him through Christ. Amen? We are alive because of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And when we participate here on Sunday morning, we are proclaiming through these things that Jesus is our hope and our confidence and our joy. And these things are not supposed to be merely external any more than a wedding band is supposed to be just a ring on your finger. It's a sign of something deeper. They're not supposed to be merely external, but deep and sincere realities of our souls. It doesn't make sense to do these things every week if they're not real. If our relationship with God does not truly exist, if we're just doing them for outward appearance, it makes no sense. And Paul now gives a very relevant illustration. He says in verse 18, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? 
And what he means there is that in their very best moment, when the nation of Israel in the Old Testament participated in the altar, when they participated in the sacrificial system, they were at least affirming who God was in their lives. The the priesthood was in charge of offering the sacrifices to God on behalf of the people, but they were also told by God that they could take some of the offering and eat it for themselves as provision for themselves. And Paul is saying that by eating of the food that had been offered to God, the priesthood, and even the people of Israel, according to Leviticus 17, they could eat some of it as well. By eating it, they were participating in the altar. They were participating in the system. In other words, they were affirming the purpose of the sacrificial system. They were affirming their relationship with God himself. Tom Schreiner says it this way. He says, those who ate of the food enjoyed fellowship with God and benefited from what was offered in the temple. Friends, that word fellowship in that quote is very important. See, we see the word participation or to participate in four times in this short text. That word participation is the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. It means to be in partnership to and in relationship with someone else, even to be contracted or covenanted to them. Koinonia is a deep and intimate term in our Bibles. It's it's one of the reasons our church is named Redeemer Fellowship or Redeemer Koinonia because we are marked by fellowship and relationship and partnership to God through our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and we are in Koinonia in fellowship with each other through Christ. Koinonia is a big word. It's an intimate and relationally deep word for the believer. And Paul is saying that like the Israelites were partakers in the altar, like they were in relationship with God through the sacrificial system, so we are in koinonia. So we are in fellowship with God through the sacrifice of his son and through the meal that we celebrate each week. Friends, I think you probably see where Paul is going with his logical thought here. He says, you're sensible people, right? If eating and drinking is a sign of fellowship, if it's a sign of deep intimacy with God, then then how absurd. Redeemer Fellowship, you're, you're sensible people. Judge for yourselves what Paul is saying. How absurd to have fellowship with the one true God and to seek fellowship and intimacy with other gods. How absurd. What Paul is saying here is similar to what so many of the Old Testament prophets said before him. When the Israelites oftentimes fell into idolatry, into the worship of false gods, gods like Gog and Magog and Baal, or even the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. When they did that, listen, the the prophets sent by God to correct them, they didn't just come up and say, hey guys, you probably shouldn't do that. Let's let's, let's move away from the idol. Let's let's worship the one true God. They didn't come casually. They They came boldly. They came and they likened the false worship of Israel to adultery, to a gross distortion of a beautiful marriage relationship between God and his people. Paul says to the Corinthians, and Paul says to us today, be sensible, 
Guys, think logically about these things. You cannot participate in a relationship with God and cheat on him by being in relationship with others at the same time. To think that way, to act that way, is to indict the sincerity of your relationship, the sincerity of of your faith in God. To participate with demons or with the empty hopes and dreams of the culture around us is to call into question the sincerity of our love and our devotion to Jesus. In Jeremiah chapter 2, in the context of rebuking Judah for the idolatry Jeremiah saw within them, Jeremiah says this, he says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Would it be appalled? Why? Because God's people had first forsaken him, the the fountain of, of living water, true refreshment, true hope, true peace. And second, not only did we forsake him, we are drinking from muddy, defiled, dirty water, water that will poison and ultimately kill, water that could not satisfy. Oh, Christian, Paul, Paul says that we must be sensible about this. Don't explain it away. Oh, I'm not guilty of idolatry. I don't worship things other than God. Don't excuse yourself too quickly. Have you turned to other things for hope and for peace that are not God? I'm speaking to myself as well here. When we are are sad or depressed, where where do we turn? Do we drink from the broken cisterns of, of secular entertainment, distracting our minds with things that oftentimes are in direct opposition to God himself? Or do we drink from the fountain of living water, which is our Savior, Jesus Christ? When when you are tired, where do you turn? Do you drink from the waters of drugs and alcohol or, or binge eating? Or do you drink from your Sabbath rest, who is Jesus? When you are lonely, where do you turn? Do you idolize and crave that relationship? Do you drink from the broken cistern of of a relationship, any relationship that you can find, or do you seek to find your satisfaction in Jesus and among his people? When when you're angry, when you're angry, when when your husband or your wife sins against you, when when your kids rebel and disrespect you, do you Do you drink from the waters of vengeance and retaliation and control or do you drink from the waters of the gospel which give you peace and forbearance and great forgiveness? College students, when you're tempted towards anxiety as this semester begins and we're praying for you as you begin, when you're tempted towards anxiety, do you turn towards the waters of social media or texting a friend or you, do you drink from the waters of God's word and his promises which say that he will never leave you nor forsake you? Lord, protect us as your people. Protect us from ourselves and protect us from eating at tables and drinking from cups that cannot satisfy our souls. And Lord, remind us that you are a jealous God and that you are jealous not just because you're petty or insecure, but because you want the very best for those that you love. And that brings us to our third and to our final point. Point number three, provoking the Lord. I love my wife, Ashley, very much. 
And she loves me very much. And even as I am jealous for her affection, she is appropriately jealous for mine. And so you can imagine if on a scheduled date night together, if I told Ashley to meet me at Iron Hill or at Two Stones Pub or at the Daily Veg, because that's her favorite place, you can imagine if, if I told her to meet me there for our date night, how inappropriate it would be if I invited there to share that date and to share a meal together, and as she walked up, I was sharing a meal with another woman. Can you imagine if after I said that I would meet her there, she found me sitting at a table with another woman, pulling the chair out for the other woman, ordering a nice glass of wine for the other woman, engaging in deep conversation with that other woman, paying the whole bill for that other woman. Listen, nobody would look at that and say that's okay. Nobody would say, okay, well, it's just food. It's just meat. It's not a big deal. It's not evil. It's just a friend. That friend is not evil. It's just a restaurant. Nobody's going to say that restaurant is evil. And so what's the big deal? No, nobody would say that. And nobody would say that because everything about that scenario is contrary to how I claim to love and celebrate my wife. It contradicts the covenant, the koinonia, the fellowship that I should celebrate in that way with her alone. Friends, look at verse 19. Paul says, what do I imply then? That food offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? And so in the, in the same way as Paul started his argument all the way back in chapter 8, Paul is saying, no, an idol is in itself not a big deal. Food offered to an idol is just meat. You can eat it, particularly in the privacy of your own home. We'll see that next week. But in the same way that, folks, you would look at me eating with that other woman and say, the, the food's not bad, the restaurant's not bad, but something about this is very wrong. So Paul is saying, the food might be fine. And the idol might just be stone or wood, but what you are doing by participating in idolatrous worship is not good. The act of offering food to an idol is far from innocent, and every Christian should run away from it. Look at what he says. He says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. But Paul is saying the actual food is not a big deal. But if you partake of the food in the context of false worship and false devotion to a false god, it doesn't matter if that idol is just stone. It actually resembles a demonic power, a false god, a false hope, a false confidence for you and for your life. And as a Christian who claims solidarity with Jesus, you should run away. He says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. It's like the understatement of the whole text. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In the same way that it is inappropriate for me to be married to Ashley while dating other women, so Paul is saying you cannot claim to have fellowship with God through your faith in Jesus Christ and through your participation in the, the communion meal and then go partake of another meal that celebrates some other false god as being worthy of your praise as well. To do so is actually to worship and praise demons who are in direct opposition to our God. And church... We should be willing in this moment, even right now today, to humbly and honestly evaluate our lives about this. How are we eating of food offered to demons? 
Your Bible is, is full of exhortations to take your life before the Lord as a disciple of Jesus very seriously. To take your sexuality and your money and your time and the use of your home and your career. Scripture is filled with examples of how a true disciple of Jesus is to use those things for God's glory. And so we should be humble enough this morning, honest enough this morning, to ask whether we have, have been partaking of demons in any of these ways. In, in my sexuality, in my spending, in my time management, in my work, how do these things reveal a wrongful commitment to the powers of this world and to the prince of demons rather than to God himself? Guys, we should be honest about this today. Husbands and wives, you should ask the question together. Where are we partaking with demons? Where do we need to flee? Fellowship groups, this should be an active conversation that you have together. Where are we wrongfully drinking of the Lord and the cup of demons? College students, you should have this conversation over lunch today. How are you claiming Christ and living for the world at the same time? And Paul says we must not do this. But it's not just a rebuke. It's not just a, a rule that he sets down. Paul says that we must not do this. Why? Look at verse 22. Because to do so is to provoke the Lord himself to jealousy. God is not happy. He is angry. He is jealous when we join in with the world by putting our hope in or finding our peace from anything other than him. The Lord is a jealous God. And church, this is great news. It is a righteous jealousy. This, this has made my heart explode this week. I hope it makes your heart explode this morning as well. God is jealous to be in relationship with you. Every time you wander into other things, every time you show more devotion to anything more than to Jesus, God is jealous. He is desirous. He is defensive about where you seek to find happiness for your soul. Why? Because he loves you and he knows that there is nothing in this world. There's no place. There's no person. There's no amount of money. There's no false gods, there's no amount of success, no amount of physical health, no amount of financial security for your retirement, no new career change, no new romantic relationship, no amount of physical beauty that you can pursue. There's nothing in this world that can make you more happy than he can. He transcends all other things. All those other things are temporary and passing, and he knows, Christian, that you're going to be burned by them. That one night stand, it makes your God angry because it will not satisfy you. It will leave you broken. That addiction makes God grieve because he knows that it will not satisfy you, but it will leave you wanting. That workaholism makes God upset because he knows that it will leave you burned out with any relationship with him or with others in your life. That putting your hope in your financial investment, it makes God upset because he knows that when the market crashes, you're going to need more than those financial numbers. Friends, it's so important for us to see this. And listen, it's so important for us to know that his anger is not towards us. His anger is not a petty anger. He is not petty. His anger is not even directed toward you because of the gospel. His anger and his jealousy is against the demons and the inclinations of our sinful hearts who try to, the things that try to win our affections away from him. His, his anger 
flows from his love for you. He sent his son to redeem you from having to serve false gods which could not satisfy. And he paid the penalty. He exhausted his wrath against you for worshiping those false gods through his son Jesus. He has now adopted you into his family. He has delivered you from all of the empty cisterns in this world. And he has established a joyful relationship with you for your good and for your joy. And he hates it when false gods and demonic powers try to win our affections away from him. He hates it so much that he tries ruthlessly and he succeeds in winning our hearts through showing us Christ and his great love for us day after day, week after week as we come into church and partake in this meal and remember, oh, all those other false empty cisterns are nothing compared to this one that I love. It's kind of like a, a husband or a father and how they should feel about their family. A husband and a father should be angry when things hurt those that they love. I remember many years ago, my dad and I played together in a, a church basketball and a softball league with the church. <laughs> you want to find some idolatry, just join a church sports league. It's, it's plenty of it there to be found. All kinds of idolatry there. I'll, I'll never forget that we played regularly against another church that, that was just plain mean. They just wanted to win at any cost. On the basketball court, they were so aggressive. And it wasn't a good kind of sportsmanship aggressive. It was a violent kind of aggression. Flagrant fouls were called on them all the time. And I'll, I'll never forget that after a particularly tense game with this team, towards the very end of the game, I was on a breakaway and I was going up for the layup and this one guy who was notorious came charging down and he, he bulldozed his way through me, undercutting my legs, throwing me against the backstop, hitting my head on the floor. Guys, if you know my dad, he is about as gentle of a man as you can find. But my dad had enough. He grabbed that guy's shirt and he, he was about to punch him. He didn't. But he was angry, and he wasn't angry in a bad way. He was angry because he was jealous for the safety and for the well-being of his son. He loved me, and he wanted to protect me in that moment. Church, God is jealous to be in relationship with you. He gave his own son for you. He wants to be in solidarity and at peace with you. He longs for your affections. He longs for your good and for your well-being. And so it grieves him, and it provokes him to jealousy when other things begin to win our hearts affections, not because he's petty, not because he's self-centered, but because he loves us and wants a relationship with us. And he knows that nothing else in this world, nothing else from this coming week can satisfy your soul like he can. God's jealousy for us, it's less about him and it's more about us. He knows that union with him is, is the path to greatest joy because nothing else will satisfy. And so Christian, if you are here today and you have been worshiping false gods, if you've been worshiping at other altars and finding your comfort and your hope and your joy in things that are not Jesus, you might be tempted to think that God is angry at you and wants to judge you right now. But if you are a Christian, his anger and wrath against your sin has already been poured out on his son and there is not a drop of that wrathful anger left for you today. He's not angry at you. He is jealous for you. His desire, his passion, 
His resolve is that you would see him for who he is and you would find your joy and hope in him. He is a jealous God longing to be in deeper fellowship with you. And so Redeemer Fellowship family, let us flee. Let us flee from every other source of hope and trust and let us flee to the one who can satisfy our souls today and for all eternity. Let's pray.